Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Women's History Month, or should we say herstory? Right now, we're listening to Joy Williams' song, Woman. Intersectional feminism is a term that's been used in the social justice and gender studies sphere for quite some time, but the concept and buzzword is now hitting news stories and social media regularly, especially since the Women's March on Washington in January. What does it mean, and what makes it different from your run-of-the-mill feminism? Later in the show, she's well-known in science fiction circles, but now Octavia Butler's stories of dystopias and race relations are reaching a broader audience, as young adult novels like The Hunger Games and The Divergent series continue to explode in popularity, Butler's works, for which she became the first science fiction author to win a MacArthur Genius Grant, are making a resurgence, including here in Boston. We explore Octavia Butler's legacy of Afrofuturism in theater and literature. But first, joining me in the studio, Shannon Weber, visiting lecturer in women's and gender studies at Wellesley College. Shannon focuses on LGBTQ cultural politics, social movements, and histories. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you. Glad to have you. Irene Mata, also an associate professor in women's and gender studies at Wellesley College. Irene specializes in Chicana and Latina literature and culture. Hello, Irene. Hi, Kelly. Glad to have you. And Erica Williams, professor of African-American literature at Emerson College. Erica focuses on the theories of race, gender, and sexuality and how they intersect. Welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. I have seen so many different definitions of intersectional feminism, and a lot of them are a little intense, let me just say, at the beginning. And we're going to try very hard not to go down the road of wonkiness here today because I want to make it clear. So I found this one from Brittany Cooper, who's an assistant professor of women's and gender studies at Rutgers, and I wanted to get you all to respond to it because it seemed very plain to me. Intersectionality, she says, simply means that there are lots of different parts to our womanhood. And those parts, race, gender, sexuality, and religion and ability, are not incidental or auxiliary. They matter politically. How would you respond to that, Shannon? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I think when we think about the history of intersectionality as a theory coming out of critical race studies and critical legal studies through Kimberly Crenshaw, um, she was very committed to making sure that we talk about it in terms of the real world applications, um, in terms of people's identities, but also how they're treated by institutions and the intersecting nature of oppression that we can't only think about our lives in terms of gender, but that everyone has these multiple experiences and identities and thus are granted differential access to power and resources in society. So, Erica, that means we're a lot of different things at once, so that when you say feminist, it can't be defined rather narrowly, as some may have in the past. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's really important to emphasize that even though the category of woman and the experience of being a woman unites us in terms of experiencing gendered oppression, 
which in many ways runs across diverse eras, diverse national cultural contexts, that gendered oppression and gendered experience isn't the only thing that individual women experience. We may also experience other kinds of oppression coming from our sexuality or from our racial or ethnic identity. We may also experience being simultaneously oppressed or marginalized in one sphere as women, but having other kinds of privilege that we may not even ask for or think about. For example, having quote-unquote first world privilege or having you know native English-speaking privilege in the context of the U.S. So I think what's also important is not just that we have all these different parts to our existence, but that they intersect, right? That's where the intersectionality comes in. They intersect and they kind of define and redefine one another so that we really understand that sort of privilege and relative lack of privilege are shifting um, and shifting dynamics along with these different parts of our identities. Irene, why is this important, this intersectionality, what Erica and Shannon and, and Brittany have laid out, the overlappingness of our identities? Why is that important? Because it acknowledges the fact that we're complex human beings and individuals. You know, as a woman of color, one can't just separate race and gender. One can't pick to just be a woman at one moment or just be a person of color at another our realities are enmeshed in both of those identities. And I think that by looking at any kind of issue through an intersectional framework, what we're doing is we're acknowledging and allowing for multiplicities to come into play. So that when we're looking at, for example, a case of immigration, we have to think about how immigration affects women differently than it affects men, how it affects women with children differently than it affects men, how it affects racialized women differently than it might affect a white immigrant. And class is also really, really important because class also gives us privilege and access to resources that working class people don't necessarily enjoy in the same way in which a middle class feminist might. Now, the expression, check your privilege, I see it everywhere, and I'm sure other people have seen it. And some people have taken that to mean that's an accusatory stance, Shannon, like, what do you mean, check your privilege? And if I'm a woman, let's begin right there, even before you get my other identities, I'm already in a marginalized state, in this country at least. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's useful to understand privilege in the context of, you know, as we've been talking about, that you could maybe have privilege in one context and then not in other arenas. So you can definitely claim the fact that you're experiencing sexism, right? But if you're being asked to consider your whiteness or consider the fact that you're heterosexual or consider the fact that you, you know, have access to economic resources, right, that those are still really important and foundational parts of how you experience the world um, and how you have access to various institutions and forms of power that other people don't. So I'm all about that personal accountability part of this, being able to to just think in a nuanced manner and to think with humility and empathy, I think, for people that don't share the same perspectives or life experiences you and be able to really respond to that and hold that. And even if for someone for whom that that might make them uncomfortable, that's part of their learning process and understanding the fact that they have privilege, right? Because privilege is something that, you know, if you are part of a group that you're not experiencing oppression for a specific experience or identity, uh, you have to be made aware of that privilege, right? And that can be an uncomfortable process um, and often can make people, you know, put them on the defensive, but that's part of that process for that person is to is to come to grips with that. Well, let me pick that up because at the Women's March in January, Erica, there was 
a lot of uncomfortableness. This march was started by a retired woman, you know, just a thought. And the next thing you know, it's blown up to uh, small cities and large and what is now documented as the largest march ever in Washington. So there was a lot of energy with women coming with different issues that they wanted to put forward, but feeling very connected by the womanness and the femininity. But in the organizing of it, there was a lot of discussion about lack of intersectionality originally and the work that went into it. So talk about what happened there at the Women's March and a bit of how that got resolved. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think it was really fascinating in terms of, you know, who the organizers were and there being the sense that the organizers were primarily white women and thinking about kind of white and largely middle class interests and not so much thinking about women of color, um, women with, um, you know, who were not heterosexual, etc. At the same time, I think there was a sense across the nation that that wasn't entirely true in terms of who wanted to be a part of the march. And I think it turned out not to be true in terms of who actually attended the great numbers of people that attended who had all sorts of different identities. So I think that's a really good example. You know, in organizing a march, the organizers might have better considered who they had at the table in organizing the march and how it would be perceived if, in fact, it looked as if it was coming from only one sphere of of womanhood, as it were. But I also think it's important for other people to realize that it was a participatory experience and that the people, the two or three or four people who thought of organizing the march didn't necessarily get to be the ones in charge of defining its parameters or defining how it ultimately uh, shaped and how it uh, came into being. So I think that was uh, an important conversation to have, but ultimately one that got resolved simply because the the numbers of people who came to the march were so varied. Um, There were so many different kinds of people and experience. And I think that that, at the end of the day, is in some ways what's most important. Irene, but there's no question that a number of white women felt bruised, had had hurt feelings. I mean, this was a lot of working out of some of this on social media and actually face-to-face with folks. But there you are. That's some of what sort of brought people to looking at this expression, intersectional feminism, and what did it mean, and where were white women in this, I suppose, to talk about it. Can you respond to that? Absolutely. I think one of the things that's really important to kind of consider is that when we talk about intersectional feminism, we're talking about structures, And I think oftentimes people take it personally. When we're making a critique of white feminism, we're not necessarily saying you as a white feminist are this, this, and this. Your privilege is this, this. Instead, we're we're wanting to have a conversation about how women experience oppression differently. And that doesn't make your oppression invalid. And we're not doing the Oppression Olympics. We're not doing (laughs) Oppression Olympics at all. We're not interested in, in, in that divisive, actually, strategy. And I think what a lot of the women who did get involved in organizing the women's marches were interested in is having this conversation and saying, okay, we don't want to make the mistakes of the past. We don't want to have a movement that excludes. So how do we bring people to the table who may in the past not have been invited? And not just in the table as tokens, but in fact to really frame and shape how we're thinking about this new movement, this new feminist, inclusive, intersectional movement. And it was difficult. And, you know, women of color were complaining also because the teaching oftentimes falls on us. But at the same time, if we are not having these conversations, then we're not changing the script. Right? And I do think that the Women's March changed the script. Like who started the Women's March, the idea of where it came from, and then who got involved and who pushed the parameters of what that march was going to look like. It did make some people uncomfortable. But I think ultimately it benefited us because it it was, you know, looking on 
those of us who participated in the marches at different places, looking at just the diversity of faces in that audience, in the in our fellow marchers, was phenomenal. That doesn't mean it was this kind of like amazing kumbaya moment where everyone was on the same page because everyone also came with their own agendas. And sometimes those agendas were supported by everyone around them, and sometimes it wasn't. I was in the Boston March when we were marching and we were chanting Black Lives Matter. Everyone around me was chanting Black Lives Matter. My daughter was at the Washington, D.C. March, and she was in a contingent that when they started trying to chant Black Lives Matter, there were other people who started with the All Lives Matter, mm-hmm. right? And so even within these these spaces where we're trying to enact change, when we're trying to resist and push back. We can't overlook our differences. We have to work through our differences in order to become better at strategizing for change. So like small d democracy, this is a little messy. It is. It's not not as easy as it looks. We're all here in the same soup together and, and making a big, nice, beautiful stew. Let me talk about a couple of other things that have come up that I know people are listening to this and thinking, but what about this? There is a woman who has a series of tapes called The Factual Feminist. And then there's also Camille Paglia, who just last week gave an interview in the New York Times based on her new collection of essays called Free Women, Free Men, Sex, Gender, and Feminism. And I think it's fair to say that both she and also the the woman who is the the factual feminist are coming from a a more right-of-center perspective. So there, there becomes a big question about where is or is should there be ideological political stances within the body of intersectional feminism? Where does that fall? There was a lot of, quote-unquote, conservative women who said we were told we couldn't participate in the march because we weren't pro-choice. Where does that call? And, he, and by the way, here's Camille Paglia criticizing feminism, saying she just really feels that there's an overemphasis on the opinions of educated white women and that women can never be truly free until they let men to be free. Now, that's Camille Paglia. Just want to make sure no one thinks I said it. That's a quote. <laughs> and so I, I would love to get just your response to that, because I don't know how to explain that. Shannon, is ideology a part or should be a part of one of those intersectionalities we consider? Yeah, I mean, so with respect to the idea of reproductive justice and the idea of um, those who may be pro-life feeling like they couldn't be part of it or being excluded, you know, I think one of the cornerstones that or at least ideally of reproductive justice is the idea of choice and whether and, and access to that choice and whether somebody personally would never get an abortion or whether they would and whether that choice would change depending on context because it's a very nuanced and complex discussion and people's lives and experiences are very nuanced and complex. But I think that is the key is if we're talking about an intersectional movement for feminism and for liberation for all people who are marginalized, that we are talking about access to choice and resources. And so, you know, if someone personally, you know, would or would not, you know, get an abortion. I think that that as long as they support the right of all people for self-determination, I think that's what's really important about that. And I think also it becomes more of an issue and a problem when there's someone who isn't advocating for inclusivity or isn't advocating for the rights for all people to work towards liberation. And that isn't necessarily only from a right-wing perspective. There's also sexism, racism, homophobia, class oppression in the Democratic Party, right? So I think it's not about advocating a certain 
type of ideology necessarily, but it is about a shared set of understandings and principles around a larger commitment to justice and liberation that is often at odds with some of the, uh, or maybe mostly or all of the current Republican platform, right? But again, not to not to say that 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 isn't also an issue, right, in like the Democratic Party, and that we need to really think past, I guess, a partisan political way of looking at it, but also whose interests are we uplifting and whose are we not? So I guess, Erica, the question would be, can you be an, uh, an embrace intersectional feminism and be conservative? That's a tough question. And I, I encounter this a lot when I'm teaching women's and gender studies courses. And I have students come in declaring themselves to be feminist sometimes, sometimes not, but also not necessarily having ideas that we consider to be aligned with the feminist party line. And I use that phrase deliberately because I think that feminism does take on the ideological cast of a political party. I remember one year a young woman who was very distressed by our discussion of reproductive rights. She was very uh, much against abortion and it made her uncomfortable even to talk about it. And I think what's key here is that we have to recognize that everyone has a right to have a seat at the table and to voice their opinion, but that there are certain values, core values that are traditionally aligned with the feminist movement, aligned with women's liberation. And reproductive freedom is certainly one of those issues. So I would say it's it's absolutely not the case that you can't be a conservative and be a feminist, have a conservative viewpoint. Conservatives have very different ideas about how to solve uh, financial problems, different ideas about the family. So I could very much see a conservative interest in maintaining a strong family unit very much being in line with feminist movements that have a history also of being concerned about families being broken up. I mean, early suffragists in this country were very concerned with immigrant rights. They were concerned with child labor laws. They were concerned with all sorts of policy issues that didn't necessarily only affect women. However, when it comes to voicing um, a stance that's against reproductive freedom, I would simply say, you are a woman, your experience matters, your opinion matters, but here's why that particular stance doesn't fully align with uh, some of the values of feminism. Because if somebody's limiting reproductive rights, there's a limitation being placed on, on women's freedom and on women's bodies. Um, so I think it's really important to have those debates. But, you know, feminism is, is not unilateral. It's not going to only encompass one idea. And not all of the people that participate in the movement and belong to the movement are going to agree. And that's part of what we have to become more comfortable with, the, the sort of dissensus and not always looking for immediate agreement. Irene, you're, you're nodding. Did you want to add to that? Um, I think it's, you know, building on, on what's been said, it, it is very complicated. And I think that when we hear um, comments about, you know, we can't all be free until men are free too, or including men in the movement, I think it, it takes as a fact that somehow women, that gender only affects women, right? That gender construction and gender oppression only affects women. And I think that's a, that's a problem. And that's a mistake. Gender roles constrict how we all interact with the world. Um, some of us feel that oppression and, the, and those constrictions much more forcefully than others. When we think about the inclusivity of an intersectional feminism, what we're talking about is understanding not just like our own oppression, our own positionality, but the positionality of others. So when we talk to conservative students teaching at Wellesley, teaching women's and gender studies courses at Wellesley, I don't think I have many students who would say I am not a feminist. Most of our students are raised to think very critically about gender already. They're amazing, amazing young, um, young people. But they do come with their own set of beliefs, right? And so in order to have a discussion in the classroom around issues like reproductive justice, 
we have to include different points of view, but at the same time question, like, where do we come up with these different points of view, right? We don't just wake up one morning and say, I'm pro-choice. That doesn't happen. Like, how, how do we get to that place as young, especially thinking of students as young adults, how do we get to that place where we develop these ideas? Because it's, it's not monolithic. It's complicated. And so I really encourage my students to, to push themselves to think differently about the world than the ways in which we've been raised to think about it. Because that allows, that allows them to understand that, you know, for example, when we talk about reproductive justice, that it's not just about abortion. That in fact, when we talk about reproductive justice, we're talking about a history of women of color not being able to have children, being forcibly sterilized against their will, a history of disabled bodies not being able to have the choice to have children, that being taken away from them. So even if we expand the conversation about some an issue around reproductive justice and we make it as something that's important not just for the individual and their own belief system, right, then it complicates their own understanding of that belief system. And we can't do that without intersectionality. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Irene Matta of Wellesley College. You just heard her. I'm also with Shannon Weber of Wellesley College and Erica Williams of Emerson College. And we're talking Intersectional Feminism 101. I want to play a little piece of tape because um, we've been speaking about this in most recent terms, very recent terms of the Women's March bringing forth some of this discussion about intersectional feminism. But back in 2015, actress Patricia Arquette brought it to the table in a different way. She was making her acceptance speech for the role that she played, ironically, in a film called Boyhood. And um, here's what she said. To every woman who gave birth, to every taxpayer and citizen of this nation, we have fought for everybody else's equal rights. It's our time to have wage equality once and for all and equal rights for women in the United States of America. Now, that seemed like rah-rah woman, right? And then afterwards, people were like, really? What are, what are you talking about? You know, lots of people, you, you were not considering except your own narrow viewpoint. Was she being anti-intersectional, Irene? I think it's hard to judge someone who just won an award and is faced by millions of people, knowing that they're going to be watched by millions of people. I, th- I think her intent was a good one. I think that she really was trying to bring attention to the fact that there is a wage disparity in Hollywood. And we've actually started having a very fruitful conversation since that speech. I think the problem is that it felt maybe a little tone deaf to a lot of people. Um, the ways in which thinking about, you know, women, we've been fighting for you is, is problematic when we look at the history of activism, when we look at, you know, the suffragette movement, which was really powerful, but it was also inherently racist and was very anti-Black. You know, there, there's been multiple moments where we've had movements that have been very exclusionary. And so I think that many people took um, her speech as as tone deaf, as not acknowledging that, first of all, there is no one universal womanhood, right? Um, not all women bear children, which I think was from the very beginning problematic, um, essentializing uh, womanhood and, and essentializing our bodies. Um, and also, it, it just doesn't acknowledge the complexities right, of movements, and it doesn't acknowledge um, who has been fighting, because it's not just it's not just women who look like Patricia Arquette. 
who make a lot of money. I'm who make like, a eh. lot of money. I mean, not money. saying I don't want her to make as much as a guy. Absolutely don't, don't, not. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I want her to get it all. But I'm just saying that was just an interesting moment. And I thought you don't often catch these moments that just sort of blow up out here in the world where we have an on-the-ground example of people saying, what? That even, even people who couldn't have told you what intersectional feminism was said, that doesn't sound right, right. <laughs> and had a discussion. <laughs> well, something else has come up recently, Erica, and that's from one of my favorite authors, and this has been really something. This is Chimamanda Ngozi Aditye. Some people may know her as being sampled by Beyonce, but <laughs> others know her because she has a, a series of uh, great books and a, and in a TED Talk called The Danger of a Single Story, which is, you know, millions have watched. She got into a conversation about whether or not trans women were actually women and were able to, well, she didn't get into whether they were women. She accepted that, but she said maybe they had more privilege because they were once male. Now, talk about where that falls in the intersectionality spectrum. Um, Is she in the same group with uh, Patricia Arquette in terms of tone deafness? Uh, well, that's that's hard. There's there's a relativity of tone deafness. Um, <laughs> I would agree. Both are examples of what I would call, you know, an intersectional fail. I think that, um, you know, it's tough. I was trying to find the transcript of that entire interview because, of course, when people's comments become controversial, people kind of take them out piecemeal and, and argue with different parts of them. But I think what it comes down to is the notion that uh, women who have experienced life as men are are not necessarily considered um, the same as women who experience their whole lives as women. And I'm going to put you in a pause and yes. read. This is a quote. I think the whole problem of gender in the world is about our experiences. It's not about how we wear our hair or whether we have a vagina or a penis. It's about the way the world treats us. And I think if you've lived in the world as a man with the privileges that the world accords to men and then sort of change gender, it's difficult for me to accept that we can equate your experience with the experience of a woman who has lived from the beginning as a woman and who has not been accorded those privileges that men are. That was a March 10th interview uh, with the BBC. Right. I yeah. think really that the, the, there are two difficult phrases there uh, for me. The first is the notion that um, women who, you know, were born men experienced privilege, right? As I said earlier, privilege is not a zero-sum game. It's not an all-or-nothing proposition. Just because you are in a male body does not mean that you are necessarily experiencing the utmost of privilege all of the time. Not only do your, you know, class status and racial status and other factors influence, but the way that you feel. And so to be born in a male body and feel that you are actually a woman is to experience the very opposite of privilege. That's one thing. Um, I think following along with that, Laverne Cox, who responded sort of indirectly to mm. some of uh, Adichie's comments, said that as a very... Laverne f- Cox from Orange is the New Black. Yes. Yeah, just fabulous yeah. Uh, trans, fabulous uh, trans woman mm. actress, activist, mm. um, you know, noted that as a child, as a male child growing up, um, that he was considered very feminine presenting and lost privilege as a result, was criticized, was bullied, etc. So I think that's one thing is to understand, yes, there's such a thing as male privilege, but not all male-bodied persons experiencing that privilege in the same way. Uh, The second phrase, which actually, to my mind, hasn't been talked about as much, but which was the most difficult phrase for me, was the notion, uh, Adichie said, of switching genders, that you sort of are male and then you switch. Um, And I think that's very complicated and really not in line with uh, what we hear from most uh, transgender narratives of, you know, identity and coming out, that it's not about a switch. It's about 
um, you know, transitioning and finding the right fit between one's body and one's identity, one's experience, one's um, emotions, uh, one's spirituality, all of that. So I think that's that was a really difficult moment. But again, it's a really great example of here we have someone who is, it should be said, an activist who mm. supports uh, queer and trans rights, um, but, you know, maybe needs to have a little bit more understanding of um, the complexity of gendered experience and that it really can't be reduced to having or not having privilege. Shannon, because this is your area of expertise, I'm guessing this is going to become a case study for discussion <laughs> uh, coming up. What's your response to this? Yeah. No. And by the way, we should say that she came back and tried to clarify her comments and say she in no way, given your point, Erica, uh, for her support, meant to suggest that she did not embrace trans women as way. But go ahead. Mm. Yeah, no, mm. I, I very much echo um, what mm. you're saying, Erica, about about you know, all the points that you've made on this. And I think, you know, um, to, to go back to uh, Laverne Cox's response, right, she said, you know, that it's interesting for her because now people are calling her a, quote, man when growing up people would call her a, quote, girl her entire life, right, which I really, I really think speaks to the struggles that people that are perceived as gender nonconforming, um, you know, go through and the ways that um, – there are so many repercussions for people assigned male at birth who are embodying uh, various types of femininity. And it speaks to the way that femininity overall is devalued, um, you know, in, in so many cultures, right, in so many uh, social contexts uh, that I think is really important not to overlook. Um, and I think, you know, um, that we really need to do a better job of listening to people and, and their actual experiences, you know, because, again, like if we go back to thinking about um, – you know, some of the history of uh, feminist activism where there was kind of a, a single lens analysis around the idea of gender and the idea that, quote, like men are the oppressor, right, that that left out so many people that either were male or who were assigned male at birth that, you know, that their identities and experiences are so much more complicated like that um, than that, you know, um, like being a man of color in our society, being, you know, um, someone who... Uh, ex you know, displays femininity as someone who is male or, you know, someone who, again, like for uh, trans women of color in particular, like facing these incredibly high rates of violence, um, you know, and murder, um, in particular, uh, low income black and Latina trans women. And so I think, you know, and that could get us into talking about these recent um you know, attacks on trans people. And deaths, and, and murders. Yeah. Yes, there's a lot right and, now. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, the, the various legislation around, like, the bathroom bills and all of that and really challenging uh, the idea that to be a trans woman means that you necessarily come from this privileged background um, or that you are, you know, treated with respect and safety in this society, which definitely is often not the case. And there needs to be a lot more um, discussion around that. Well, I want to look toward the future and ask you all to respond to, to um, it's a little bit of a critique from some, but also looking forward, and that is whether or not intersectional feminism uh, weakens feminism overall or strengthens it, and which way you see it going in the future. So I'll, I'll start with you, Irene. Well, I, I think my answer um, is probably pretty obvious. I think um, intersectionality definitely strengthens um, feminism. And I think it actually strengthens the ways in which we can imagine change in the world. Um, I think when we look at our movements, when we look at what different groups are trying to accomplish, unless we have a vision of a just society, 
um, then what are we working towards? And I think that intersectionality actually gives us a framework for imagining a society that is just to everyone, not just those in power or not just those that are advocating for specific rights. Erica? Absolutely. 100% in agreement with Irene. Um, I think it only strengthens feminism in part because feminism at its core is a social justice movement. Um, it is about equality for all. And so if you are a woman um, and working solely on the issue of kind of um, women's rights and mitigating oppression that is gender specific, um, but you're not going after classism, racism, homophobia, etc., um, then the lives of those women who have those other marginalized identities are not going to be as uh, good as they can be. They're not going to be as free. They're not going to be as equal. So I think that's really important. Another reason it's important also, I think, is that part of imbe what's embedded in intersectionality is the idea that you don't just have different identities, but they inform one another. Mm. So, for example, having this um, devaluation of women that we have in our society means that if you are a man uh, and you have a quote-unquote feminine side, whatever that means, that you're also going to experience a gendered oppression. You're going to be oppressed whether or not you are trans or genderqueer. Uh, or just a man who's has a different relationship to his masculinity, you're going to experience oppression as well. Um, and so doing work around gender identity, um, you know, valuing women, opening up our ideas of what gender means, not only serves women, but it serves men. So it's going to strengthen feminism and strengthen women's lives, but it's going to strengthen all of our lives um, as well. And Shannon. Yeah, um, I think that, you know, especially in this political moment, um, when so many groups of people are under attack that it's really, um, it really behooves us to work to find solutions um, that do work for, you know, all marginalized groups of people. And, and that there's a really, um, you know, not to say that, you know, um, throughout the history of the entire United States, right, that this was also true. But I think that as groups are coming together and uniting around the various attacks on immigrants, um, on Muslims, on undocumented people, you know, on trans people, you know, um, going forward from that, I think it's a really important opportunity to build um, coalitions and to build solidarity movements to be able to actually come to grips with and make space for difference and be able to talk about difference and to be able to understand um, difference and how you know people's uh, differences uh, can work together at the same time to be able to create a more inclusive movement. And I think also really going back even to like the Columbia River Collective Statement um, from several decades ago at this point, but where there was really a focus on uh, working on the issues of those who are the most marginalized in society, almost like a bottom-up approach. So directly the opposite of the trickle-down theory. Um, <laughs> but thinking about, you know, if we, and, and their analysis was, you know, specifically talking about uh, black lesbian women, um, and they also had a critique of capitalism, but um, that if we focus on those who have the least resources and the least access to power, and we start with lifting up those populations of people, those who have more privileges above that, um, you know, are really going to also be uh, benefiting from that as society is transformed. And I think that that's really an important um, way of orienting ourselves that we should really be looking to, especially as we see so many uh, federal programs under attack being cut um, and really thinking like who, you know, who is, uh, who is experiencing the most loss because of that and uplifting those populations. Well, thank you all. There you have it. Intersectional Feminism 101. And I really appreciate all of your thoughts and insights. 
Thanks, Kelly. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Shannon Weber is a visiting lecturer of women's and gender studies at Wellesley College. Irene Manta is an associate professor of women's and gender studies at Wellesley College. And Erica Williams is a professor of African-American literature at Emerson College. Coming up, how artists and scholars today are reimagining author Octavia Butler's novels to reach a new generation of science fiction fans. Afrofuturism and dystopias retold through graphic novels and performance art. That's next on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 